Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I am the host, Brianna Battles, founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism and CEO of Everyday Battles. I'm a career strength and conditioning coach, entrepreneur, mom of two wild little boys, and a lifelong athlete. I believe that athleticism does not end when motherhood begins, and this podcast is dedicated to coaching you by providing meaningful conversations, insights, and interview topics related to fitness, mindset, parenting, and of course, all the nuances of pregnancy and postpartum. From expert interviews to engaging conversations and reflections, this podcast is your trustworthy, relatable resource for learning how to practice brave through every season in your life. Hey everyone, I'm really excited to bring Dr. Sasha Hockman to both the coach course certification as well as the podcast because all things fertility can be really confusing for both coaches and those that are experiencing different fertility challenges, information, misinformation, and just trying to walk and navigate the nuances attached to that. So I'm so excited to have Dr. Hockman explain all about fertility during uh, these seasons of a person's life. Thank you so much for having me. It's yeah. great. I, this is my favorite topic when it comes to fertility. So. Oh, good. Well, and I was told that about you and that's what made me start following you. And I just love the information you put out there. It's like really practical and relatable and obviously informative. Thank so you. Give us a little bit of background on yourself, how you got into this and just sure. yeah, your background. So uh, in terms of education and training, I'm a double board certified OBGYN and This is a mouthful, reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. Just to keep it short, most of us say that we're fertility specialists, but we don't actually only deal with infertility. We deal with all things to do with reproductive hormones, abnormalities of sexual development and things like that. So it involves a lot of medical treatment, but a lot of surgical treatment as well. So we do operate in the specialty. I happen to have an absolute love of sports and athletics. I was always very athletically involved since I was a young child, gone through different competitive sports. The main one when I was younger, being a competitive swimmer, And eventually transitioning to water polo, where I played uh, varsity water polo for University of Toronto. And, you know, as I got older and transitioned out of, you know, sports teams, it became a love of powerlifting and resistance training um, and even delving into a little bit of amateur bodybuilding. But so I I love exercise. I think it is an incredibly important part of life. And um, I do think that as women, oftentimes, although luckily it's changing, we are often discouraged from working out the same way that men do. So this is where my interest came from. I I love all of that. And for the record, we haven't talked before except for like social media. So I also was a swimmer and water polo player. And I feel like we are such a rare breed. I know. (laughs) I don't hear that often, but I love, I love that. And I love that. I, you know, your background kind of helped lead into your area of interest so much. Now, did you know that you always wanted to be an OBGYN and like focus on this or what was your thought process? No. Well, I always wanted to go into something with women's health. I just thought that I would become a breast surgeon. My interest was breast cancer. And so when I was a medical student, my goal was to get into general surgery. But then when I did my OBGYN rotation, 
I had one attending that I worked with who honestly let me get really hands-on with a lot of the surgeries. He did a lot of gynecologic procedures and I honestly loved gynecology. I loved obstetrics too, but I really loved gynecology. And so I kind of had a change of heart, went into OBGYN and then the subspecialty of reproductive endocrinology kind of came later when it, it was more of like a lot of my colleagues saying you have the personality of a fertility specialist, you totally should go into REI. And I think that kind of planted the seed of my interest in it. I love that. I think that, you know, I, I have not experienced any of this myself, but from what I hear, you know, people are entering your office, I'm sure feeling already a lot of different complicated emotions. So to be met with somebody yeah. with compassion and such good energy has got to be so fulfilling for them. Thank you. I hope so. That's always my goal. And, you know, I was on the patient side of things and I even had some really weird and interesting experiences being the patient since I uh, didn't actually get treated in my own clinic where I was doing my training. You know, it just, it really changed the way that I look at how we should approach things with patients. And when people come walking through the door, I, I already know, you know, we're all different, but I can't, I have an idea of emotionally what you're going through. And so the goal is to make it as less intimidating as possible and as comfortable as can be. I love that. I think so many of the coaches who are working through this certification or who are maybe revisiting it have had similar experiences. It wasn't until we became the client or we became the pregnant or postpartum athlete and we're dealing with different changes yeah. to our athletic output or core and pelvic health and just all of the changes that can happen during these seasons that there was an eye-opening experience of like, oh, the, there needs more, there needs to be better support, more knowledge, um, more resources for people who are navigating any particular. Totally. Totally. So tell me, I think a lot of people, whether they are experiencing any kind of fertility struggle or not, they want to know what can I do when I'm thinking about having the baby, when we're in the trying to conceive process, what are some different considerations, whether it's exercise considerations, nutritional, maybe different tests that they should do to understand their hormones? Like, what does that process look like when we have somebody who is, has baby on the radar? Totally. Okay. Well, to start with what kind of exercises and sort of lifestyle habits, the biggest thing about exercise is continue doing what you're doing. You don't need to modify or lessen your exercise routine with the exception of a few things. If you are underweight, then it's time to slow down, especially if you're over-exercising. There is very limited data in terms of how much is too much, but there are some sports exercise journals that have looked into this. And women who have a BMI under 19 are particularly sensitive to having ovulation issues if they continue very intense and vigorous exercise for an hour or more every day. It doesn't mean you have to stop exercising. It just means maybe lower the intensity if you are someone with a very low BMI. If you have a normal BMI, you can certainly exercise for an hour of very intense 
workouts, you just always want to make sure that your caloric intake is matching how vigorous your workouts are. So if you are an athlete, like a true athlete who is training hard, say you're competing in something and you really just don't, you want to have a baby and you also want to compete. You're allowed to do both. You just have to make sure that your calories are meeting the requirements that your body needs in that point in time. So don't undernourish your body because then your body will take that as a sign of, oh, we're too stressed right now. We're undernourished, can't feed a baby. So it's not time to get pregnant. Obviously you can still get pregnant, but it just means it'll be more difficult. But in general, the recommendation for all women is to exercise a minimum of 150 minutes a week. So that goes for everybody. If you are already a conditioned athlete, just keep doing what you're doing, but make sure that your caloric needs are met. And we talk about that in the certification we have, different um, nutritional professionals that have contributed to this, knowing like if we see changes in the menstrual cycle, then we got to really look at the nutritional intake and the caloric output that they're having. Like if you're thinking about having a baby, probably not a good time to be entering into a macro cut or anything like that. Just, and I think yes. there is this desperation to like, I want to get in the best shape as possible before yeah. having a baby, but could that sometimes counteract the trying to conceive process? Once again, it really depends on the person. So yeah. like, say, say you have, you're currently in the, and I, I hate to always use BMI, but that's kind of the best reference that we have in general, if you're in the normal BMI category, so that's 19 to 24, then you have actually a lot less to worry about in the sense that you can, whatever your goals are, if you want to get stronger, you can do your progressive overload. Just make sure that you're getting that protein intake, that you're getting your carbs and your fats. Now's not the time to cut. You can't cut for aesthetic purposes if you're trying to conceive because, you know, it's actually funny. I was doing that when we started trying and my treatment cycles just kept failing and I had a come to Jesus. You know, my husband had to have a come to Jesus moment with me where he was like, you do this for a living, you know better you need more body fat percentage at this point in time. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) And so I had to really step back from weighing my food, knowing that I was in an ever so slight, and it wasn't even a big calorie deficit. I mean, I think I was only in about a 300 calorie deficit like per day, but it was enough to really um, perhaps be the reason why my, my cycles, just all of, I was doing ovulation induction with IUIs and they just were failing, um, six months in a row. So yeah, that it's definitely something to consider, but in terms of trying to get stronger or faster, maybe it's not really the time to focus on that, but rather to more of maintenance is really the way to go while you're trying to conceive. If you're new to exercise, it's totally fine to start, but give yourself grace in terms of not expecting that you're not going to be able to lift heavy weights overnight. It's got to be very gradual. You want to put stress on your body so it gets stronger, but you don't want to put too much stress that it thinks that it has to really adapt in every sense of the word to this new environment. Absolutely. So are you a fan of tracking your cycle and tracking ovulation if you're trying to conceive? 
Absolutely. I think that if, if you're thinking that there might be something wrong, if you have painful periods, if your periods are not quite regular and you're not a hundred percent sure if you're ovulating, but you're still getting monthly periods, but you're just not quite sure that it's right where it needs to be. Or if you think there's suspicion of male factor infertility, then you don't need to wait to go and see a fertility doctor to get an evaluation. It doesn't mean you need treatment. It's just to get evaluated to see, is there something going on or not before we just continue this journey of trying on our own? If there's no suspicion of any issues, then definitely tracking ovulation is the way to go it definitely makes you more in tune with your body and what's happening. And the most efficient way of doing that is number one, using ovulation predictor kits. So there are these LH strips you get from the pharmacy. You don't need to get the fancy expensive clear blue ones. As long as you just read the instructions from the package inserts, each company has a a little bit of different instructions on how to use their tests And um, that way you get an idea. Now, it doesn't work for everybody. Some women will ovulate for whatever reason. It just does not get detected on the kits. And I've even seen this with patients where I monitor them. I have them do the kits at home. I see that they're ovulating, but they don't see that with the LH kits at home. In those cases, if you are getting a monthly period, you are ovulating. Otherwise, you wouldn't be getting periods so regularly. And in that case, it might be helpful to use the calendar method where the gist of it is you go from day one of your period to the day before uh, the first day of your next period. And then that number, say it's 29 days, you you subtract 14 from it, and that's the estimated day that you ovulate, plus minus a day or two. But as long as that's kind of your area during the month where you're most fertile, as long as you're having sex, every day or every other day, then you're probably hitting that window. Yeah. I feel like it can be such an overwhelming time, even like when we were trying to conceive just like, okay, this is our window of time where we really have to be proactive with trying to make baby. And I mean, I think that it just can add a layer of stress. And a lot of people have been told well, we just got to reduce your stress or have some wine or like really kind of dismissive things around conceive. So can you touch on that notion and messaging? Well, yeah, I hear it all the time. And even as a fertility specialist, I get so triggered by it where I'll even have patients who say, yeah, is it true that if I just relax, I'll get pregnant? I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. Yes, stress can affect fertility. But when we talk about stress, We're talking about extreme circumstances. We're talking about eating disorders, severe malnutrition, exercise bulimia. Someone close to you just died and now you're dealing with extreme grief. Something very tragic in your life has just happened. People who are in war zones, that's the kind of stress we're talking about. Not, I'm thinking about getting pregnant and it's consuming my mind, so therefore I'm not going to get pregnant. It doesn't work that way. I just, I appreciate you saying that because I know so many people feel really invalidated in their experience. They're like, I'm trying to not be stressed, but this is also kind of stressful. It's not always yeah. easy or straightforward process. So I do appreciate you touching on that. So we talk about stress, but what hormones influence fertility? Like, what are we looking at to see 
what do we want to be at a certain level or how do we know when maybe we're having a problem? Well, I mean, there could be so many different hormones that can interfere. So it's a bit of a loaded question. So for instance, if you have thyroid disorder, now, if you know you have a history of thyroid disease like Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism, it's really important to get it rechecked and make sure that you're in a good fertility range because normal thyroid or TSH levels, they do change when you're trying to conceive, especially if you have a history of thyroid disease. That can affect it because it's the same part of the brain that releases thyroid-stimulating hormone that also releases follicle-stimulating hormone so that we can grow and um, mature an egg, as well as luteinizing hormone, LH, that's responsible for the LH surge so you can release and ovulate the egg. They all kind of are released from the same part of the brain called the pituitary gland. And so abnormalities in your thyroid hormone can affect ovulation. Also, if you have elevated prolactin levels, which usually will present itself as irregular periods, but can also present itself as you're literally having nipple discharge as if you're lactating, except you're not postpartum and breastfeeding. So those would be hormones to check. Those are the two most common things we deal with. In theory, when we talk about stress affecting fertility, we are talking about cortisol, of course, but once again, we're talking extreme stress, not just the regular day-to-day worries that we all deal with. So those are the big players in terms of the hormones. Uh, Women with polycystic ovary syndrome oftentimes will have abnormalities in their testosterone levels, and that can affect ovulation. They can also be dealing with uh, prediabetes, also known as insulin resistance. So you have higher insulin levels which can also affect testosterone levels, can affect LH levels, and therefore FSH. So everything's very closely intertwined. Lots of different endocrine issues can affect ovulation. It seems like having maybe a full panel done either prior to starting to conceive, just so that you have an idea of what your status is on everything, seems like a good idea. It definitely doesn't hurt. I would say the majority of people don't do that. But um, if you're someone, I've had patients come in who say, actually, one of them had a very interesting point of view. It was the husband who was like, why would I wait to, to find out something was wrong? I would just, we just want to know from the beginning that everything's okay and then we can start trying. And there are couples who just want that evaluation first and that's perfectly appropriate. You can even do it with your OBGYN. You don't necessarily have to see a fertility doctor. Is there any like particular tips you tell somebody if say their blood work looks totally normal, but they're in maybe the first, what, like four months or so of trying and they're, they're not getting pregnant are there any before treatment tips that you tell them? So usually I'll say, you know, it, it first it depends on age. So if you're under the age of 35, you're in what we call a good age prognosis. Um, you're still young. Your fertility shouldn't have been impacted by age yet. And so just give it time. The chance of conceiving in one month is 20%. It doesn't stay 20% month to month. Otherwise, everyone would get pregnant after five months, right? It doesn't work that way. But by six months of trying, 
80% of couples will have conceived. So if after six months, you're really starting to get worried, I think that that's okay. If you're not someone who wants to wait around, it can still definitely happen over the next six months if you want to do the waiting a whole year mark, but you don't necessarily have to. But for couples where the woman is older, um, so now we're dealing with particularly uh, late 30s, early 40s, you don't want to wait around and give it too much time if you're wanting to try and see if it happens on its own, that is appropriate, but I, I wouldn't let it keep lingering. If after a couple months it didn't happen, then perhaps leaning on the more aggressive side of looking into treatment options. Absolutely. That's a good segue into what are some fertility treatment options that we have available? Um, there are so many, it really depends on the diagnosis and, um, the indication. So to keep things kind of basic, if you have ovulation issues, it could be as simple as just doing ovulation induction with oral pills. And that helps to, uh, instate a regular ovulatory pattern that's more predictable. And, and that would be with timed intercourse. Alternatively, if there is unexplained infertility where we do all of the testing, it doesn't mean there's nothing wrong. It just means that the initial evaluation didn't reveal anything. Then empirically, you can get treated with ovulation induction plus intrauterine insemination. So we take the sperm sample, we wash it when you ovulate, and we've manipulated when you're going to ovulate so it's as predictable as possible. And then we place the sperm in the uterus directly. It is a little bit of an expensive treatment and doesn't yield remotely the same success rate as IVF. So many of us tend to lean more towards IVF as a first treatment for unexplained infertility, but ovulation induction with insemination is also appropriate. Alternatively, if there's only male factor, but it's really mild, so mild abnormalities in the sperm, obviously we want to look into why that's happening with the male partner in hopes of medically treating that and improving it. Plus, you can also do inseminations alone. And then, of course, there are so many indications for in vitro fertilization. And um, that could just be that all other treatment modalities have failed. It could be that you're older in age. It could be that you're trying to do gender selection. You might want to be testing for a specific genetic condition you don't want to pass on. So there's a lot of different indications for IVF. And then those, especially much older women in their mid-40s, late-40s, or those who are in premature menopause, they have the option of using donor eggs in cases where there's no sperm, using donor sperm, and then in some cases using a gestational carrier, which people commonly misname as a surrogate. Uh, It's not actually a surrogate, it's a gestational carrier, someone who carries your baby for you. So it, it really just depends on what your diagnosis is and what you're trying to achieve. Um, thank you so much for explaining, you know, just that overview of the spectrum that exists for treatment. Cause I think a lot of us just sort of assume IVF, but there is a lot of nuance involved in this. conversation, yes. Of course, let's talk a little bit more specifically about IVF because this is where I've experienced the most questions from people I've worked with. And definitely the coaches that are working with this population they have a client who is going through IVF. And I think there's typically a lot of fear around exercise early on um, during treatments early on in pregnancy, especially in terms of exercise. Can you start with first, like what does IVF entail? 
And then are there contraindications to exercise at different points throughout this? Yeah. um, So in terms of what IVF entails, this is where before you actually start your IVF cycle, you may um, be told to do something called priming. Either you're given birth control pills for a couple weeks or you're giving an, given an estrogen pill or testosterone, whatever your protocol is. But usually that's only for a couple of weeks. Then once your period starts, you would start what we call ovarian stimulation. And so if you think of the first half of the menstrual cycle, which we call the follicular phase, this is the phase where we're trying to recruit a follicle that contains an egg so that you can ovulate. If we're doing IVF, we're trying to recruit all the follicles of that month safely, of course, uh, so that we can get them ready to then retrieve them in a procedure known as an egg retrieval. This whole process usually takes about two weeks on average, where once you start your stimulation, you're getting injectable medications to stimulate your ovaries much more than your body naturally would. And the goal is to just make reproduction as efficient as possible. We're releasing one egg a month that's extremely inefficient as human beings. If we are retrieving at least dozens of eggs, then we can really accelerate the time to baby. Um, So that's kind of the premise of it. During this time, the ovaries are becoming a lot larger than they normally would in a normal menstrual cycle. And so although I almost never discourage my patients to exercise unless they had a medical contraindication to exercise. This may be the time where some doctors will say, all right, there are certain exercises you can't do. I don't want to see you doing handstands or weird acrobatic yoga stuff, gymnastics, whatever, because your ovaries are so enlarged by the time you get to your egg retrieval that the ovaries may twist on each other. That's uh, called an ovarian torsion. It's a surgical emergency because if you cut the blood supply off from the ovary, then you can actually lose that ovary. And so, and it's extremely, extremely painful. But some of us docs will actually just tell our patients, if you want to continue resistance training with isolation movements, where you're not doing weird positions, that's perfectly appropriate just no hit training jumping things like that like you know lower, just lower intensity low impact not more controlled kind of movement versus really correct dynamic or high intensity correct because if you're going to do a, uh, you know even like an overhead press or you're going to do bicep curls you're not going to do anything to your ovaries realistically and and the the truth about ovarian torsions is that it actually happens in your sleep more often than not So you rolling around in bed is more likely to cause it than anything else. So you don't have to stop exercise, but you know, it's just a matter of modifying for the time being until your ovaries shrink back up. After the egg retrieval, the ovaries are more inclined to get a little bit bigger even. So it's not like you're out of the woods after the egg retrieval. You do need to give it a week or two to kind of shrink back down. Usually by the next menstrual cycle, you're probably okay, but still may need some modifications until your doctor clears you. Sometimes, honestly, it could just be as simple as doing an ultrasound, seeing that they're much smaller and you're good to go. Or you may not even get that ultrasound, but you feel like you're totally back to yourself. And you really feel it. I mean, when I was doing IVF, I could feel my ovaries. It was almost like having two tennis balls 
moving around in my abdomen. And so I was very limited. Um, I also have PCOS, so I knew I was hyper stimming. So uh, I was limited in what I could do exercise wise. So everyone's a little bit different and you just got to follow your doctor's guidance on it. Absolutely. And so now let's say they are, they were able to conceive and now they're in that first trimester of pregnancy. And I think there might be like a lot of fear and anxiety attached to not wanting anything yes. wrong. Of course. What of course. your patients, especially in terms of their exercise, their output, they're just navigating their daily life and a lot of those thoughts. So I would say number one is listen to your body. If you are full of energy and you're like, I need, I need, I need to exercise. I'm just not feeling like myself. I want to move then listen to your body and give it what it needs. You don't, it, like, like I said before, earlier on in this talk, if you are conditioned and you've been working out for a really long time, like you are not a novice at whatever you're doing, just keep doing what you're doing. Plenty of women who conceive spontaneously, they were continuing their exercise routine without batting an eye or even overthinking anything. And, you know, by the time they find out that they're pregnant, they're just like, oh, okay. You know, if as women, as human beings, even if we were so sensitive to exercise and movement that it would prevent a pregnancy from continuing on, I don't even think we would survive as a species, (laughs) you know? Um, And if we think about what it used to be human many, many years ago, where we had to scavenge for our food, where we had to physically work for everything that we did, how would we, you know, be able to procreate? It's stressful, right? So I, I do think if you are conditioned and you have not been living a sedentary life, you should be able to do what feels good for your body in that point in time. If you're really scared about it, because unfortunately, a lot of doctors create fear, a lot of people create fear, and you just feel uncomfortable about it and you just want to modify it, then once again, do what makes you feel comfortable. I remember having my embryo transfer and the clinic where they transferred my embryo. They were like, absolutely no exercise. In fact, bed rest. Otherwise, you're not going to get pregnant and you're going to lose the baby. And I just laughed about it because I was like, they know that I'm an REI and they're telling me false information. I went to the gym the next day. I was doing hip thrusts. I think I had like uh, two forty-five plates on each side, <laughs> and you know, I was I was doing everything. Like I was doing my leg press. I was doing my leg extension, my leg curls, all of it. I did a full lower body exercise, and then I did my one hour walk, which is what I do every day anyway. So it didn't change anything for me personally, and I. I do think that by encouraging a lack of exercise early in pregnancy, it really long-term will affect women's health. We know women who exercise in pregnancy are less likely to have C-sections, are less likely to have labor complications and health complications in the pregnancy. Absolutely. So yeah, one uh, theme of this course is like, you are not fragile and you are also not invincible. So let's figure out a way to like- yes actually learn how to listen to your body and honor what your body needs. And some days totally. be like you're able to push it and other days you need to reel it in and be able to truly honor respect and, and honestly just adapt to what your body needs at any given point in time. But with the, I guess the implantation and making sure that 
I know there's just a, such a fear of miscarriage, I think in general during the first trimester, but especially those who have gone through IVF or maybe they're on the second round of it. We So you're saying that right now exercise, there's no contraindication to exercise outside of that implantation period early on or getting the... Well, not, not even implantation period. There is no data to show that exercise will negatively affect implantation. You know, there's also no good data saying that you can't have sex either. So it's very doctor dependent. You'll have some doctors like myself, where I tell my patients activity as usual, nothing changes. Just make sure you're taking your meds as prescribed. That's the biggest thing. Take your meds as prescribed, follow those directions. And then other doctors who will literally say, do nothing. Don't look at your husband. (laughs) Do not have sex. None of it. Yeah. Um, and you know, it appears anecdotally that we all have kind of similar outcomes. Yeah. Um, and so it's unlikely that exercise and sex will negatively affect IVF outcomes, just like they don't reduce your chances of having an ongoing pregnancy if you were to get pregnant on your own spontaneously without even knowing it. So, so yeah, the, the biggest limitation to exercise is during the ovarian stimulation phase when the ovaries are larger, that's just, that requires the most modification. And once again, it's such a finite period of time, but when it comes to doing, you know, and that does, you may have a fresh embryo transfer. So your ovaries are still enlarged when you had your transfer, you still have to continue that modification for a little while. But if you had a frozen embryo transfer in a whole new cycle, your ovaries are not enlarged, you can certainly continue exercise. And there's very little studies to prove this. And alternatively, like there aren't any studies to show that you should stop exercising. It's hard to do a good clinical trial because of, you know, how sensitive and vulnerable of a population it is. We tend to run into that uh, across the board in this realm. There's not enough research on this population at all. Always. Um, But I think this is where we just like try to use our best judgment and have like really intelligent conversations with our clients, be really emotionally intelligent and help make good game plan decisions. Like some days might be she might be feeling really good, or we might have a client who has a lot of anxiety attached to it and is like, I don't want to do a whole lot during my first trimester. Yeah, she feels really sensitive. And then we can, like you said, drop intensity, drop loads, drop frequency, mm-hmm. volume, whatever it might be, manipulate some of these training yeah. variables to better suit what she mentally feels, emotionally feels, and then physically needs. For sure. Yeah. And like, it could be something as simple as you're not training to failure in the first trimester, because you just emotionally and mentally feel the need to not get to that push to that point. And then now you've crossed over to this hump of the second trimester and you're like, okay, well, I'm feeling more confident about this pregnancy. So yeah, let's do it. I'm going to push to failure, which at that point, failure is probably going to be a lot sooner than it previously was. Absolutely. And it's all just being able to adjust and adapt as needed. And you know, we talk about that anyway. Pregnancy is kind of like one major deload over time. Like you're just kind of doing a little yes. bit, manipulating some of these variables a little bit more over time. And then yep. postpartum, you just gradually rebuild and it's it's all progressive overload and deload just kind of used strategically. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love that. So what are, what would you 
what do you want the fitness industry? People that are working with women all the time, what would you want fitness and different practitioners to know about women who are undergoing different fertility treatments? I guess I would want them to know that, you know, listening to the client or the woman is a really, really important thing. Some will feel like they can really push themselves. And if that's what they're feeling and they feel truly like they are capable to do that, I think it's important to respect that. And alternatively, if there's someone who is ridden with anxiety around training to really help with modifications to adjust their emotional needs, even if physically that's not what they need, if that's what they need emotionally. I also, and I'm sure that this is part of your course, uh, to know that obviously, like you mentioned before, pregnancy is a gradual deload. Um, Your body changes so much, you're physically not going to be quite as capable of what you were before. And to help pregnant women realize that because it's sometimes really hard when you're used to training to accept the fact that you're just not as strong as you were before physically. You're strong in other ways that you weren't before, but um, your body is changing and you just got to give it the time that it needs. And especially postpartum, it takes a while. But also that if if someone's coming to a trainer saying, hey, listen, my doctor said that I literally can't exercise at all. I'm not really sure why. And I'm feeling the need to do it then maybe having having them in, be encouraged to talk to their OBGYN or talk to another doctor just to maybe get that second opinion. I, I do get a lot of patients will come to me for their next IVF cycle where they were elsewhere before. And they said they were told not to exercise the entire time that they were in treatment and that they gained a lot of weight. It changed their life. Their mental health went down the gutter. And I'm just like, no, please work out. Like you need to work out. It's it's important for you. So yeah, just a combination of both that they listen to themselves. Um, and, and we respect what someone is saying about their body, but also if they're being told not to exercise and they disagree with it to maybe encourage them to talk to a different physician and see really truly, is there a contraindication to them working out? Because if not, why limit them to what they're wanting to do physically? I'm so glad you said that because I think that's a huge barrier and the disconnect where we're trying to really bridge the gap between the medical and the fitness communities and the medical and the practitioner communities of just like better continuity of care so that we know what the medical, you know, medical considerations are and then we can apply it to exercise appropriately, but we don't want to contradict what their doctor says, especially with something like fertility treatment. So I can see that it's, it's just a little yes to navigate that. Well, I mean, infertility and infertility treatments are not in and of itself a contraindication to exercise. And if anything, it should constantly be encouraged to continue these very important lifestyle measures that helps promote health and longevity and positive mental health and all of it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise. This was incredibly informative. And I know that the coaches that are working through the certification are going to benefit greatly. Their clients will also. And then our listeners on the podcast, you've reached so many people that I know need to have this validation and insight. And I just really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me um, and for talking about this 
Amazing topic. I love it. (laughs) Where can people find you or follow learn more about what you do? Um, So you can find me on Instagram at Sasha Hackman, MD. There's no C it's H A K M A N. You can always DM me through Instagram. I'm really receptive to direct messaging. And if you ever needed a fertility doctor, you can find me at HRC fertility in West Los Angeles. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge. Very thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practice Brave podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and help us spread the work we are doing to improve the overall information and messaging in the fitness industry and beyond. Now, if you are pregnant and you are looking for a trustworthy exercise program to follow, I have you covered. The Pregnant Athlete Training Program is a well-rounded program for pregnancy with workouts for each week that are appropriate for your changing body. That's 36 weeks of workouts, three to four workouts each week, and tons of guidance on exercise strategy. We also have an at-home version of that program. If you are postpartum and you're looking for an exercise program to follow, the eight-week postpartum athlete training program would be a really great way to help bridge the gap between rehab and the fitness you actually want to do. From there, we have the Practice Brave Fitness Program, which is an ongoing strength conditioning program where you get new workouts each week and have a lot of guidance from myself and my co-coach, Heather Osby. This is the only way that I'm really offering ongoing coaching at this point in time. If you have ever considered becoming a certified pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach, I would love to have you join us. Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism is a self-paced online certification course that will up-level your coaching skills and help connect the dots between pelvic health and long-term athletic performance, especially during pregnancy and postpartum. Become who you needed and become who your online and local community needs by becoming a certified pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach. Thank you again for listening to the Practice Brave podcast. I appreciate you. And please help me continue spreading this messaging, this information, and this work. Mm -hmm.